as far as the COVID thing goes, from the experience my wife had, she had, with the vaccine at least, with the Moderna vaccine, the first shot hit her really hard. Her arm was sore from the elbow to the shoulder and she, you know, got queasy and she was, you know, under the weather for a couple days. The second shot, she really hydrated well for. She made, you know, she made sure she hydrated a couple days ahead of time really well. And then she pre-medicated. You know, I think I think she took Motrin, maybe. I don't know. She took something. She took, you know, one of the standard things. And um, I'm sure if you look, maybe acetaminophen is what they want you to take. Anyway, but she pre-medicated before the shot and then right after the shot. And the second one wasn't bad. Her arm was a little bit sore, but it wasn't bad at all. And I've heard that a lot of places that if you hydrate really well before you get the shot and then pre-medicate, it helps. But ultimately, it's going to be down to each individual. In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your feverish host, Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful northeast Minneapolis. Feverish, you say? Yeah, I'm uh, sitting here sweating just in my underwear. Oops, <laughs> TMI. Um, but I had uh, my second COVID vaccination, the Moderna vaccine, on Friday night. It's now Sunday morning, so it's about 36-ish hours later. And yesterday I, I limped to the finish line at work. Um, that was that was a hurting unit, and this morning I'm running a fever again, about 101, and I kind of feel like I played a football game yesterday. Just feel beat up. And I'll probably go into work because um, it's just the reaction of the vaccination. I'm not contagious or ill or anything like that. Place my orders, kind of uh, make the case look good, and then I'll probably leave early. But we heard from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast there at the top of the show uh, with some of his thoughts and the experiences of uh, his family with uh, the COVID vaccinations. And I am thrilled to have my second vaccination. Um, it's like a step towards, I, I'm hoping, not really immunity, but something, well, as immune as I can, can probably get at this point in time. So... I mean, I do not want to get COVID again, and I don't want to give it to anyone either. So um, these are steps in the right direction. Mary gets her second vaccination on Wednesday, so we'll both be fully vaccinated, and maybe we can uh, actually see our family members again soon, and, uh, you know, in person, and maybe we can eventually get to the point where we can game face-to-face -face again? What? <laughs> I would love that because uh, while, while it's been alright uh, gaming online and I know some of the, the people in my game group are a little far-flung as far as just their geographic locations and have to commute much further than I do to the, the place we game. So it's probably much easier for some of, uh, some of the guys in the group um, to me, the experience isn't at all the same. It's very much a step down for me. Your mileage may vary. And Jason's got some more thoughts here. By the way, for the record, I, I, it, I'll listen to your episodes regardless, so I don't mind. I like calling Bonanzas, and I like your regular content episodes. So I, But I'm with you. I try to mix. I mean, I try to do more variety show. Where I try to mix different topics in a single show anyway. I don't always succeed at that. Sometimes I just talk about one thing, or sometimes I just have call and bonanza. But I kind of like the, the calls and the back and forth conversations that happen. You know, because I look at Anchor and the way, you know, we podcast as the audio blog. So we put out something and then people respond in the comments with their calls and then we respond to those comments and then somebody responds to our comments and I really enjoy, I think that's the best thing about Anchor is the back and forth and that audio blog, you know, thing it does. But yeah, 
however you want to do your shows, I'll listen regardless. Take care. That really is the net effect of Anchor. It is an audio blog. And, I mean, there are big advantages to that. Number one, I think it has a more human perspective, listening to people's voices, and especially on these call-in shows and stuff, or if you just mix in calls in your regular uh, episodes and stuff, having different voices, or if you do a podcast with another person, different points of view, and hearing those different voices, it almost does start getting to the point of feeling like you're listening to the conversations of some old friends or taking part in a conversation with new friends. And it just becomes, like I kind of alluded to in the last episode, it becomes more humanizing to me and more uh, a sense of being more real, more uh, just, yeah, just it just feels like you're actually interacting with an actual person, even though, you know, on blogs you certainly are too, right? But the other big advantage, of course, is you can do other things while you're listening to the podcast. You can be mowing the lawn or vacuuming or doing laundry or driving to work or whatever. It doesn't require the same level. It doesn't require eyes uh, or uh, it doesn't require your, your involvement as much. You can have it as a background kind of thing, like listening to a ball game or something and uh, that's a real big selling point for me, too. The one thing I, I do wonder about these call-in shows that I do is whether it would be better to break them up into smaller bits, maybe have more uh, call-in shows that are, say, 15 or 20 minutes long and are devoted more towards one topic rather than the what often becomes an hour-long true bonanza. So if you have any thoughts on that, chime in. Uh, I do the bonanza thing in part because sometimes I do just get a lot of calls, and, uh, and I worry about uh, skipping some and just overlooking something that someone sent in, and uh, because Anchor just doesn't... It's not the best at organizing those things, and sometimes people, when they do place a call, there's no uh, real tag as far as like a topic or something to the message, so you almost have to listen back to them to remember, to figure out what the, the message is even about, so it just makes things a little bit more difficult to organize and divide up into episodes. But if I if I did them more often... As, as the calls come in, um, maybe that would be better. But then, you know, people call in later talking about the, a topic that another call had. And then, what are you, going to have a second call-in show about the same topic? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like having a conversation that some people hear later on, right? And they reply to it later on. So, anyway, you asked for it, Jason, so it's bonanza time. Hey Rob, Jason here. This is probably a mistake, but I'm calling you before listening to Joe's messages in your latest episode, because you mentioned that they kind of go in a different direction potentially. Just I want to comment on a couple things before I forgot about them, because I am in the car, not taking notes while I'm listening. You mentioned with unarmed combat, you're worried about divorcing the, you know, stun results or the results from hit points, and that's the problem. But I think that's also part of where we're bumping heads here, because I do want to divorce from hit points, because I don't want to have to whittle down 50 hit points of a high-level fighter in an unarmed fight. You know what I mean? And I think if you do, I, honestly, I, I'm still, a, to some degree, a big fan of the um, SEDUL rules because if you just do that percentage of their hit points, the 50 hit point fighter still is a lot harder to knock out than a, you know, magic user. But I totally get where you're coming from. Um, and, and again, I'll do an episode here at some point. So I'll talk more about unarmed combat there. But, but I think that really is the, the key here, isn't it? 
that you do not want the characters to lose the advantage of having greater hit points and and you like the more granular of one hit point two hit point three hit point where i'm okay with just them having a higher percentage of hit points so it's a harder percentage to knock them out i i think that's really where we're we're hitting it where the rubber meets the road with this discussion on unarmed combat as far as but one last thing real quick you talk about the different in idea of how to play and i'm with you i'm pretty much in the moment in the game but there's a big difference when you go up in levels like daniel saying i'm going to interrupt jason's flow here because he's going to switch topics but so i'll address the unarmed combat thing quick i think the key little snippet that you had in there was high level fighter and 50 hit points to me those are the problems in D more than the actual systems and stuff or the the mechanisms in the game it's that if you were rewarding characters for going up in level i think that reward should fit across the board it shouldn't mean that you're more impervious to sword play but still susceptible to being stunned in arm, unarmed combat or something and i understand what you're saying that the proportion if you're using like a subdual system as outlined in AD&D for dragons where there's a percent chance that you can subdue or stun someone or whatever by the amount of damage you do versus the amount of hit points the creature has. The more hit points the creature has, the lower the percentage get. But that percentage is still there. And it's not there for things like swordplay or getting hit in the face of the mace. And to me, that just seems kind of weird. But the the way to really solve that problem is to not have characters get to 7th level and beyond and not have characters get to, like, 50 hit points and stuff. And the older versions of the game don't let you... Uh, are you, <laughs> 50 hit points is a lot of hit points in Swords and Wizardry or BX. Um I mean, if you're actually rolling the dice for your hit points, uh, it's pretty dang unlikely that you're even going to have 50 hit points at ninth level. Um, but, you know, that's that's my point of view. And like, like you say, I think we just have a different mindset in those things. I really want to... I really don't want to have high-level characters. I'm not interested in that kind of game. And I also... Um, lost my <laughs> thought process. I want to have levels matter. The, the levels that you do get, even though they're only second, third, fourth, fifth level, they should all really matter. All right, let's move on. All right, it's the next day now. <laughs> but I was reviewing what I had recorded. And one thing popped in my mind about the unarmed combat thing is it's a little bit like boxing matches. And if you have two high-level fighters, say the equivalent of Muhammad Ali fighting um, George Foreman or something, the Rumble in the Jungle, and they go 15 rounds, If uh, Muhammad Ali was fighting me, it would go one punch because <laughs> I'm I'm zero level, you know. So I don't know. Is that a way to think of it? I mean, if you're really experienced, you have, you know, you're savvy at avoiding blows, and you're doing the rope a dope, and you're a tactician, and if you're, you know, just a a brawler. Maybe you can lay out punches, but you can't take as many punches or you don't know how to uh, avoid the damage and stuff. So I don't know if that helps or not or if I'm just uh, whistling in the wind. And yes, I switched topics to the idea of multiple characters, but the idea that players are going to want to get those, you know, maximize experience for their main character to go up to second level is a big deal when you think about it from that player perspective. So let's look at the lowly cleric. So in the best version of the game, 
clerics don't get any spells till second level. And in the best level of the game, the clerics turn undead abilities actually go up pretty rapidly, right? So those those that cleric when they go up in levels, not only all of a sudden can they heal the other play, cast heal spells, which is huge because the first level cleric can't cast any healing, but now they're turning a lot more of the undead. Their turn undeads increased. So I think for you know just looking at the lowly cleric, it's a big deal to go to second level. Okay, gonna go listen to Joe's calls now. Hey, uh, Daniel for Penance. Keep calling in about the call-in show. I think I'm creating a circle here. <laughs> I'll see if I can find an episode and I'll send you the, the link where, where, where he does it um, in, in a way that I think is really effective. Um, actually, I kind of had a thought we were talking about the sidekicks. In one game that I re- played in as a player a while back, the DM just always kept our henchmen at half our level. We weren't allowed to have one till second level and then they were first. It was half rounded down. So then when we got to fourth level, they went up to second. So they did it that way. So that, that's another way to kind of keep it balanced. Uh, you know, they shouldn't be the same level as you. I kind of agree with you on that. Um, but I mean, I'm with you on, on the whole, you know, being in the moment and, and not really thinking too far into the advance. I mean, characters don't always last so long. But uh, but I do know that, you know, having conversations outside the game with players that they are concerned with that stuff and, and they, they do want to level up. I mean, I guess, right? Everybody wants to show achievement. And there we heard from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast again, and Daniel from the Bandits Keep podcast in YouTube channel. And they are referring to our ongoing conversation about players potentially running more than one player character to flesh out a small party or to make a party um, more effective and how the we've ar- most have arrived at the conclusion that the the main stumbling block for most players with that is uh, stifling the advancement rate especially at low levels so you might have to play an extra session or two uh, more than you would uh, to go from first to second level and there is a big potential power jump going from first to second level you could potentially double your hit points uh, which well I suppose it's really unlikely but it's possible you could still do that at third level if you if <laughs> the hit points you rolled at first and second level were really poor but uh, I have kind of some mitigating factors there um, in my own house rules where I give people maximum hit points at first level and you always get at least half your hit point potential on a roll. Um, but I understand where they're both coming from. There's no denying that if you're running more than one PC, you are stifling the advancement rate potential. That's if they all survive, though. You could have a, a situation where you have an adventure with two PCs and only one of them survives and they get the full share of experience points. Um, and I guess that's the main thing I'm driving at is that it is uh, another element of the risk-reward dynamic that exists within D&D. You, the greater the, the risk, the greater the reward so if you go at it with just say a three uh, character party you do have the potential to split up the loot among far fewer survivors so they all get more experience points more treasure more rewards but the risks are much higher so you're really rolling the dice and um, it's more apt to come up snake eyes with a smaller party and uh, so I think it's kind of a little bit of a tortoise hare dynamic. And um, I don't know. I, so far, my players have chose the hare route. <laughs> and there's no surer way to have a slow advancement rate than to have your character continually dying. Uh, I found myself in that predicament um, in the 
previous uh, Mega Dungeon campaign Keith was running, where I had two magic users die before I finally had one that got to second level, and he eventually did get to fourth level, but everyone else was typically a level or two higher than me because I'm, I was the character that kept dying, which is often the lot in life of the magic user PC. But, um, yeah, I, I sometimes wonder that, you know, if, if a group really does have issues with characters being too weak, uh, at the beginning, maybe you should just start everyone at second level or start everyone with like 2,500 experience points. So the magic use, well, I suppose that would make thieves third level then, but I suppose that might make thieves more appealing too. But, you know, give everyone a certain experience point total to start with. And yeah, that might be a solution. I'm... I've never really been a fan of that. I don't know what it is about <laughs> my mindset, but I always feel like that's somehow shortchanging the game or, it, I mean, cheating is the wrong term for it, but just stop, kind of sidestepping an aspect of the game, which I, I enjoy, but I realize that not everyone enjoys you know, scrounging and clawing your way from, from, you know, a lowly first level character to, to second and third level and beyond is an aspect of the game I really enjoy, but I know that, yeah, that, that's not really everyone's cup of tea. Uh, but now we'll move on to a series of calls from Jason. I think we'll hear from Daniel again, from BJ, from the Arcane Alienist. Taylor from Clerics Wear Ringmail, and is there another one? I can't remember. But they're all concerning a couple of calls that Joe from the Hindsightless podcast left me uh, for the last bonanza, where he was talking a little bit about the evolution of the D&D game and how it came to de-emphasize the party size so it went from the assumption that there were like six to ten party members to the eventual assumption like in 5e where there's four party members and the player characters became more versatile and more powerful so that you didn't have to have a big party and henchmen and all that to uh yeah herm you got something to say about it well herm Herm's a henchman, so he wants his share of the treasure. <laughs> uh, and the other point, the aspect that Joe had, which we'll get later, is asking who'd win in a fight. Uh, would, uh, would a first-level 5e fighter be able to take out a first-level BX fighter with a couple of men-at-arms? So, some interesting questions. In the last episode, I gave some of my thoughts on that. I'll give more later, but let's, uh, let's go to the calls. Okay, let me re reply to the first part to Joe's calls before his um, fantasy fight scenario, I, which I just started listening and paused it. I think Joe makes a great point about the difference between Gygaxian D&D and post-Gygaxian D&D, right? Whether that's TSR, Watsy split, wherever you're going to make that split. It probably happens somewhere in 2nd edition once you add skills and powers. But this is something that Barry from Shadow the GM Lord, or yeah, Shadow the GM podcast and I talked about. We did an episode called TSR D&D versus Watsy D&D recently over on Nerds RPG Variety Cast. And we talked about the differences between the earlier games and later games, the mechanical differences. And what Joe brings up is a big one because in the earlier games, they do expect you to have a bunch of henchmen a lot of times, where the later games do want you to have the just the core party. And again, I'm recording in the car, driving down the road, so I can't give you references, and I'm kind of spouting off the top of my head, but I don't think there's a whole lot of disagreement that that's 
that's you know there. So I think Joe is really defending my 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 assertion that's not all D and D. Ha 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 ha! Joe, you have proven your own demise. Ha 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 ha! Okay. So the other thing Joe mentioned that I think is interesting here is the idea of what was the other thing you mentioned? Oh, the idea of the number of henchmen and all that. And then you talked about how, you know, normally your party has two or three henchmen and maybe some charmed monsters. So I have played in games with loads of henchmen. Carl Rodriguez, Game Master Extraordinaire, runs a game called Broken Lands. And that is Beckme using the Orcs of Thar Gazetteer when we play humanoids. You know, orcs and kobolds and hobgoblins and whatnot, right? Bugbears. And in that, typically we have... There have been bigger parties, but a lot of times there are three or four players at a session. But basically, we're, we create our own kind of mercenary band. And so, yeah, the PCs are kind of the head of the band, but we've hired on. We've got, we, you know, we've got like a, you know, like a dozen goblin archers, and we've got these bugbear shock troops, and we've got a couple trolls. And we now we pay for all these henchmen, you know. But yeah, there. But that. But in that game, we are actually doing the thing where you have a handful of PCs, with, you know, there, there are at least two to three times as many NPCs, hirelings, that work for us. They're not really henchmen; they're hirelings. But, but although there, there's this one goblin to Colin Green's um, character that's kind of like his herald. He goes up and says, "Ah, you can't talk to him like that," and he and he talks crap to anybody that. Colin's character talks to, which is pretty funny, but yeah, so, but in that game, the hirelings definitely, you know, like say there are two or three as many hirelings as there are PCs, so it's a, it's an interesting dynamic, and a lot of times we'll have to leave them back, and the PCs will go do things by themselves, or just take a couple of the hirelings with us, but if we're going to do an assault or an attack on something, you know, we'll take a large force with us, and, and you know, it's a lot of fun. Okay, back to Joe's calls. Hey, Rob calling in in response to Joe's commentary, which I think was astute and very interesting. Uh, going away from henchmen is definitely less bookkeeping, and it shows uh, a change in the design goals. Uh, I think that that corresponds also with the story arc. Uh, in older games, it was about the party, it was about the group, whereas in newer games, it's more about the character and about the story that they're living. Um, in terms of module size, I feel like there was an expectation not that people would run multiple PCs or run armies of henchmen in the dungeon, uh, but that there were just that many players around the table. I'm remembering a league that some friends of mine and I used to run, and we would have 8, 10, sometimes even 12 PCs at a time with that many players to correspond to them. To build on that, how many leagues or tournaments are being played now compared to how many home games? So the AD&D rules, uh, or so I'm told, I wasn't alive yet, were a streamlining and a unifying effort so that they could play these tournament-type events. Uh, but if you have a home game, a proliferation of home games, then you're going to move more product. More people will need the, the Dungeon Master books. More people will be interested in the supplements. And if you're playing at home, how many uh, home referees are going to have 10, 12 friends. So all of a sudden, you're going to need more henchmen. All of a sudden, you're going to need more powerful PCs. So I think, in part, the design goal to make PCs more powerful, to make adventures more accessible, is rooted in promoting the home game. Now, you can say that it's fun to play the hero. Uh, to traipse about the countryside and defeat those bad guys with your powerful character. And I, ha I do play with some friends who really enjoy that. Uh, but for me, I enjoy the bookkeeping. Uh, I enjoy uh, counting torches uh, for the first level or two. I enjoy the wash of wealth that comes as you level, and I enjoy building a warband effectively. Um, once my character is big enough to build a stronghold to carve his name into the country, I can retire him. I've won. There's the win condition built into the game uh, if you can get there, and I really enjoy that. So I recognize that that's just my 
experience. I mean, recognize that that's just my preference, but knowing that, that's probably the reason why I've gravitated back towards the basic line. Thinking about the development of D&D over its 45-year history or whatever it is now, a long, long time, could probably fill, you know, a three-volume set. There's just been so many influences because it's always been uh, such a pivotal instrument in the whole idea of gaming, not just tabletop role-playing gaming, but how it influenced computer games and, um, and even some board games and stuff too. And, and then, like I was saying in the last episode of these feedback loops that we get from popular culture back into D and D. So I don't think it's any surprise that the rise in popularity of superhero movies has influenced role-playing games and computer games and how role-playing games and computer games influence the movie industry and probably some forms of popular literature too and tv shows and all these things just become this zeitgeist the soup that just feeds back into it and articles that people write and blogs and podcasts and all these different things influence the future designers or design teams and contributors to the game. So all these things play some role, whether it was just people thinking way back in the uh, strategic review and dragon magazine with letters to the editors and articles submitted and, and Gygax and the design team taking some of those ideas and incorporating them into the game all the way up to 5th edition where they had, what was it, tens of thousands of people contributing to the formal playtest. So it's it has become this juggernaut <laughs> of, of ideas and influences. And uh, yeah, go check out uh, the episode that Jason and Barry did on Nerds RPG Variety Cast where they they talk about this evolution and maybe making this delineation between TSR D&D and WotC D&D and how those two things are where it kind of jumped the shark but yeah it's been this long developmental process and you know, where it will go now. And as Taylor points out, you know, how much did just like marketing come into play too, because obviously it's a business and now in the hands of a very, very large corporation. And their main goal is to have it become more and more popular and more and more profitable, which was probably the goal of, you know, it's always been the goal, right? But you can tell when it <laughs> was in the hands of a few amateurs who slowly became professionals. I mean, there was no professional RPG designers when, <laughs> when RPGs were created, right? Uh, it was all in the hands of amateurs. And as it's uh, become more and more polished and refined... Uh, you can see kind of the slick <clears throat> corporate influence on it, and maybe that's part of what I object to. Maybe I just object to it being in the hands of this huge corporation, this money-making machine now, and being so popular as to be... Um, it's just the assumption now that if you say you play D&D, that you're playing the current edition. And that's maybe always been the assumption to be fair uh, and that's kind of rooted in our in a lot of our cultural dna too that anything newer is obviously better and yeah i i obviously don't feel that way um and it's not all just D D to me there is a lot of the same the same bones the same skeleton is there so you can see 
elements of the oldest edition of of the game still in the newest edition, and that's because they've wanted to maintain this continuity so that they don't lose the previous generation of gamers. I mean, they want it to still be what people think of as D&D, and that was the folly of 4E, is that so many people felt like it was no longer the same game, and the design team certainly learned their lesson. So there's always going to be the same six attributes. There's always going to be classes and levels. It's always going to be a D20 rolling for, you know, to hit and stuff. And it's always going to be kind of a pseudo-medieval fantasy game. Uh, But the actual structure of the game and the feel of it has changed. And so has the need for fewer and fewer player characters and how... It's gone. It has gone from being almost like a war band to a super team, and with uh, that whole idea of having a lot of retainers and henchmen and stuff, it wasn't just to, um, yeah, to go down and in, into the dungeon with more and more people to bring more and more force to bear. That could be part of it, but it's also just to expand the the characters expand their influence not simply by their own personal power but through having more and more people under their command or under their influence and eventually that does get to the point where you have these strongholds and baronies and and whatnot and goes to the domain kind of game and as taylor points out that's where a lot of games i think used to end um, <laughs> for our games, they all end before that, but the domain play starts because people start having to cope with these problems that they have with, all right, we've got all this treasure. We can't just leave it in our room in the inn anymore. We have to protect it somehow. So you either like, well, what do you do? You bury it out in the woods and hope that no one saw you do it. Um, or you hire some henchmen and some loyal retainers to guard it for you. And then you, that whole process starts. Well, where are they going to guard it? Oh, well, uh, we'll have a house. And then that house becomes a small fortification or something, or it becomes a trading post to make more money or a tavern to make more money. And it goes on and on and just builds from there. And I think that's a really fun aspect of the game and which isn't to say you can't have that same dynamic with any of the rule sets. It just seems more integral to the game in the classic versions to me. That emphasis seems to be more present in the game than it is in the current iterations. And it's also really interesting to think about how the game is going to change in the future based on technological and societal changes that we've seen quite recently but but you even see how the technology the technology has uh, dramatically increased the popularity of the game just based on things like social media and well and social acceptance of playing these games too and the popularity of shows like Critical Role and other actual plays that, you know, get millions of people watching them, which is staggering to think of. And I don't even know how many of those people actually play the game or are just watching this as a form of entertainment. Um, but uh, regardless, just the, the, the steady accretion of play throughout 45 years inevitably means that it's (laughs) become much more popular but with the with the pandemic forcing everyone to look for other ways to play and how the majority of people now are playing games online whether that's on a virtual tabletop or just over zoom or meet or some other 
way to to have these uh, online group sessions. It makes me wonder how that will be folded into gameplay and how maybe that will become the assumed play style and will the next games make that assumption that you're playing online and and there's a D&D app or something that you have and you're playing through and you can, you know, there will just be all these ways to have pictures and um, automated fighting or combat sequences or, you know, at least die rolling and stuff like that that will take place and uh, just to facilitate the game being online and who knows what other things will come about with uh, VR technology and stuff. I mean, there, uh, it... There's no doubt it's going to change, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it will be it'll be interesting to see what it's like 20 years from now. It'll it'll still be around. I have no doubt of that. In some form or another, but it will be something very different than what we have now. So let's move on to uh, Joe's second question, where he has the I don't know D and D Fight Club, where he poses the question of how would a first-level BX fighter and a couple of men-at-arms fare against a first-level 5e fighter without any help, just on his own. And um, we have a few calls pertaining to that. So take it away. As far as Joe's apples and oranges idea of... Although, that's not really fair. That's not fair to Joe. As far as Joe's 5e player versus a BX player with henchmen and stuff, I don't know. Like you say, the, the 5e player is going to kill them with one shot each. You know, every hit's going to kill one of them, right? Um, I, I mean, to me, that's your big difference when you look at these systems. Your BX characters, you know, they have the same number of hit points on average that a weapon does on average each hit, where a BX weapon does each hit. Where a 5e character has, I don't know, I'd have to look at it, but they have a lot more hit points than any weapon does is one hit in one hit, right? So a 5e character takes, I don't know, X amount of hits to kill them, where a BX character on average takes one hit to kill them. So, so I, you know, in their respective systems. It would be interesting to do that math. I'm sure somebody will be willing to sit down and do the math for that. Oh, Joe's thought experiment is pretty interesting. And at first, I, I was, as soon as he said it, I was like, well, yeah, of course, more more characters are very likely to kill, you know, even if they're, you know, the other character is slightly stronger. But you make a very good point. And if you everybody fights in their own rule set, uh, bounded accuracy is going to make the 5e character much more likely to hit, plus all the bonuses, as you mentioned. So not only do you have characters that are going to be less likely to hit in the BX side, but you've also, um, you've got way less hit points in most cases and probably less damage. So yeah, I'd be curious to see those numbers, but uh, yeah, really good thoughts. And uh, I haven't finished, but I see you're about to say that you're going to, I guess I'm thinking, do a episode on henchmen. And if you do, that will be amazing because that's such a great subject. Hey Rob, just listening to the call in Bonanza, and I think that there at the end, uh, Joe brought up a really interesting question that you, that you sort of addressed about what would happen if you put a fifth level or fifth edition fighter at first level against a BX fighter with some henchmen. Uh, that would be an interesting thing to play out, I think, on the table and see what happens. I don't know if you're familiar with Dungeon Craft. Uh, that's a YouTube channel where uh, 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 the, the guy talks about lots of different things with, with both old school gaming, modern gaming. It's a, it's a wide range. But he recently did a video about raising this question, are fifth edition characters tougher than the old school and he compared a bx fighter fighting a hobgoblin from the scenario it's morgan morgan is it morgan iron wolf from uh from the bx manual the basic and uh anyway he compared um morgan iron wolf fighting a hobgoblin from from the bx edition and then created a, a fifth edition version of her and had her fight hobgoblin the same hobgoblins and really found that because of the way 
monster's toughness has also escalated that the odds of either one of them defeating the other one were about the same across edition and what it is that makes fifth edition characters so much tougher is really more their ability to uh, survive once they've been dropped to zero hit points as long as an ally can heal them or they make their death saves and can, can crawl off and live to fight another day but as far as just blow for blow damage per damage proportionate to their hit points and their attack bonuses and various factors they're about the same now that's not the same thing as is a a fighter from each edition facing off against each other so that would be really interesting to see how that plays out differently yeah maybe i'll dig out my 5e player's handbook i'm not even sure where it's at right now and do an episode where i actually get into the nitty-gritty and break it down it would be an interesting experiment to see i mean i don't trust my math skills to be able to calculate the probabilities accurately but i'm pretty confident that i could make a first-level fighter character in 5e with the standard array who is plus 5 to hit and plus 5 on damage. And probably with like an 18 AC and, I don't know, maybe 13 hit points or something. <clears throat> and the first-level BX fighter might have like, I mean, it, it really depends on what you assume are the attributes of a first-level BX fighter. Uh, because it is all random. And um, rolling 3d6 down the line. So theoretically, the, the BX fighter is as likely to have a penalty as they are to have a bonus in any attribute. But again, presumably because you chose fighter you wouldn't have at least multiple penalties and maybe a bonus so i'm not really sure where you set the uh the benchmark for the bx fighter but i can say that they will have something along the lines of five hit points and their retainers will have something like four hit points three or four and you know, the, the BX fighter um, will just be... They won't be able to one-shot the the 5e fighter where the opposite almost guaranteed with plus 5 damage. Uh, they'll one-shot all any of those characters, and then they have the second wind where they can, um, you know, essentially use a bonus action to uh, to heal themselves for a d10 of damage. And if you really open up Pandora's box and allow any build in in 5e and not just confine it to a apples to apples of a human fighter, if you allow something like a dragonborn fighter, they might be able to kill the whole lot with one breath weapon. Because <laughs> some, some of them are cones where you could catch uh, uh, two characters, maybe even three, in in your breath weapon and if i'm remembering right i think it says two to six or two die six points of damage if you fail your save and one die six if you make it so even one die six is enough to potentially kill <laughs> the whole group and if you if you um allowed say like a half orc too they have I think some special power there if they're dropped to zero hit points they can just say they're at one hit point so you're essentially giving them like three hits to kill them um or to to knock them down probably more like four or five so yeah i'm i'm thinking and i'm thinking the 5e character has a much better chance it might be even 50 50 and there's also this last consideration morale those henchmen those retainers would have to make a morale check when one of them dies or when their employer is killed. So it's, and that's depending on the charisma of the, the fighter that's employing them, 
that would be basically a, a seven morale. So almost a, a little better than a, like a, a 40% chance that they just run away or, or surrender or something. So if you incorporate morale too, then you're really, I think, starting to tip the scales towards the fifth uh, edition fighter. Um, I have watched Dungeon Craft. In fact, I think I even watched that video you bring up, BJ, about uh, comparing them, the Morgan Ironwolf scenario. And that is something I've brought up many times before, too, that 5e increased the power level of the characters and the monsters to the point where a hobgoblin isn't even really uh, an quote-unquote appropriate foe any longer for a first-level character by their own definition of challenge rating, I think. So, uh, whereas a hobgoblin in BX is essentially just a goblin with, on average, two more hit points, uh, I think an additional, like, plus one to hit or something, and, um, and maybe a point better in armor class or something. So, uh, which, I'm not going to downplay those, things in BX because every little thing in BX is more meaningful. Excuse me, but but I think just because the Hobgoblin itself has changed so significantly, it's not even a really quote-unquote appropriate monster to face any longer um, for a first-level character. Um, I don't know if it's really a fair comparison to make. Yeah, it probably is. But I seem to remember having some issues, too, with how he, how uh, the guy in Dungeon Craft built. I think he was overlooking. There was something about that video I should watch again that immediately rang false to me. <laughs> I can't remember. But that, that show in general, from what I've watched, I've maybe just watched like four or five of his videos. Um, seems like it's pretty good. Much better than the Dungeon Dudes, which Jason and I <laughs> watched that one episode, and I watched a few more, and whew, yeah, not my cup of tea. But yeah, I'll, I'll do, um, I'll maybe do a breakdown of it, a more nitty-gritty thing, if I can find my 5e player's handbook and figure out the probabilities and all that stuff. And um, I'll definitely be doing a henchman and hirelings episode in the next, if not the next episode, in the next few, I'll tackle that one. And next, uh, we have a couple calls from Jason and from Goblin's Henchman um, reacting to my very last episode, where, which was the uh, conversation about uh, the dice are screaming and their decision to leave the OSR and just the whole idea of what the OSR is and if we should, the idea of not lumping everyone together. Welcome to the penthouse, Thunder. Hey Rob, Jason here, just listening to your latest episode. Good job. It's a tough topic. Not easy to cover and kind of tough to tackle because how do you, you, you know, how do you resolve it? But I think you did a good job in, in at least putting it all in perspective. So thank you for that. And I look forward to your next one. Take care. Hi, Rob. It's Goblin Sentiment here. So I thought I'd just chip in on the, uh, you know, the rant episode. So Initially, I wasn't going to call in. I thought I'd listen to what people had to say, and I figured everyone would probably cover everything that they thought, you know, was relevant. But I just thought there was one one thing that I'd just like to sort of touch on, and and that's this idea of well, all right. I mean, let's back up a step. I mean, first of all, let's talk about labels. Um, you know, I think. I, I, you know, if I was to say describe myself, I'd say I was certainly DIY, and um, you know, if you had to throw a hoop over me, you know, I'd say I'm probably OSR because um, I don't know what other category I would fall in. Now, in some ways, I've moved, move, I find myself moving away from that term not because of the association. It's more with negative people. It's more that I, I increasingly not become unsure what it means. It seems to. It seems to me that it's become more and more diffuse as, as, 
people embrace it. Um, so, but again, you know, uh, I would say that you know DIY yes, and and you know almost certainly OSR by any any most people's yardstick. Now, I guess the thing I was wanted to touch on was this idea. It reminded me when Google Plus closed. Basically, there was a big rush for people to join MeWe, and then there was a big and then there was a lot of people kicked off and said, no, no, don't join MeWe because it's full of uh, far right lunatics. And then I thought, well, why am I going to surrender that territory to them? You know, if it's a valid platform where people want to meet up and chat and, and it's good, then yes, if we all if we all leave or don't join it, then yes, it will be the, the refuge of the, the fire right, right lunatics. But if we all go in there en masse and say, bugger off, this is our, we, we want to use this platform too, and guess what? It becomes less so. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, it seems a bit lun, you know, lunacy. Like you know, there's undoubtedly right wing lunatics in America, but you're not going to leave America because there are some right wing lunatics and and give it to them. And and that's sort of my view on this 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 idea of whether you, if you if you think you're you fall under the hoop of OSR for whatever reason, whatever that means, then why give that up? Why say I'm leaving because there's a some some people who are causing a stink? You know the problem is these people. You know they do have a platform and they're loud, and I think they cling to the ban of the OSR even harder because that's you know a rallying rallying point. Now in some ways I I know why they rally these these you know negative people are doing what they're doing. I think that basically they feel that the way that they want to play the game is being taken away from them. You know, I'm not allowed to have orcs be orcs, in, as I have, have understood them to be. But, you know, guess what? It's your game. You can you can make orcs whatever you like. You don't have to make this great big stinking fuss. And it's mainly the, the way they um, put themselves forward. It's so negative. I mean, I was one, one guy on that, used, that um, was on Google Plus and... And then what you know? Then he threw. This is the I guess Wenger, and then he he threw. He seemed to suddenly destroy his lot in very hard with um, RPG pundit, and then he just seemed to go a little bit kind of triple down on all the kind of weird rhetoric. And at that stage, I mean, he he basically did. I think the thing that kind of turned me off him was he did this thing where he did a fake thing where he 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 kind of did a sort of faux gender assignment, but he said he was an alien or something, and it was clearly meant to be a kind of parody. And I, I felt it was, a, you know, it was quite de- uh, demeaning to the, the, the people who, who who feel that way about their lives, and you can't take that away from, you know, how, how you know, their, their genuine beliefs. And I just felt it was, it just wasn't very kind, essentially. It was quite mean. And so at that stage, I started to... Th- you know, switch off from that that thing, and I think actually since Google Plus has closed, a lot of the amplification has disappeared. So you know what I what I say to people is, if you are OSR, if you feel you're OSR, then why why surrender it to lunatics? Um, yeah, um, and the other thing while we're at it, I mean, <laughs> talking with lunatics on on, on Google Plus, I I used to I used to interact with like some people on the the right, far right, and tell them why I thought they were wrong, and I also interact with people on the left, and I'd say why well, I thought they were wrong on certain things. But then I came to the conclusion that these people weren't actually interested in, in dialogue. What they were interested in was validation. They wanted you to agree with them, and if you didn't agree with them, it was like, well, then you must be super left, or you must be super right, and then they would attack you. <laughs> it's like, I just, I thought you, I actually just thought you wanted to discuss it. You know, that's that's where I was coming from. So. I don't I don't bother talking to ideologues anymore because they're not they're not interested in discussion. Uh, if they were, I would talk to them. Um, so you know, and and actually, you brought up just for final, hopefully the final thing. Um, you brought up um, what's it, Stuart Roberts, OSR logo. Well, actually, he made that Creative Commons, so he can't take that back. That's in the public domain now, so. Um, like it or not, that logo is fair game. Uh, 
now the only thing I would say is that I would respect his wishes. Uh, I've never used the logo actually, but if he doesn't want me to use it, even though it's Creative Commons, I won't. But for you know, just for the straight up and down of it, it's no longer his property. It is Creative Commons, which means as long as you say <laughs> uh, this is this is his property uh, that he created it, then uh, whatever the restrictions are, then he can't he can't stop anyone using it. I mean, I think I guess he was trying to assert his moral rights, but uh, I think that's uh, uh, pretty pretty thin, frankly. I think he also tried to assert that he was going to trademark it, which is kind of almost um, well, it's kind of almost laughable if you if you've made it Creative Commons, you, there's no way you could trademark it. Anyway, I've, uh, I've definitely spun off into far far wider wider comments than I was intending to do. I guess I guess the final 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 thing I would say, and I think I've said this before, um, is that um, people. The, the online community is so vast that people make the mistake of thinking that everyone that they talk to is just like them, you know, and they're not. I mean, I think, and this is where I where I butted heads um, initially uh, when I joined the scene was that I assumed that people, you know, had a similar mindset to me. But for some people, for example, politics, you know, people say, don't bring your politics into my game, but some people you know you know everything is politics for them you know uh, you know the what they eat is a political decision you know <laughs> it's not you know you can for that person there's no there's no it's impossible for them you, you can say it, don't bring politics into my game but for them you know n nearly breathing's politics so it's it's impossible for them to do that and you know that's where you just have to choose your group and say well your level of you know engagement to on issues is 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 fine finding that distracting my game I can't play with you or you know it's not a problem and yeah sure we can do that anyway far too long a message but certainly interested interesting topic and I was definitely interested in what everyone had to say but uh, I, I just the one thing I didn't think that came through is you know well for me anyway don't don't give up don't give up your badges don't give up your allegiances just because someone else um, is is being a jackass tell tell them to get get off your get off your lawn okay cheers fella thanks very much bye hey thanks guys for the calls i appreciate it and i agree pretty much with everything that goblin's henchman brings up here i don't have time for purity tests and ideologues anymore um and i don't have time for people that have no interest in compromise or discussion and uh, demand conformity. That's just not my jam. And if someone comes and takes a dump on my lawn, I'm going to tell them to get the hell out of here and I'm going to go clean it up. I'm not just going to close the windows and uh, deny it happened. It's, uh, I do think we need to if we are going to have this community, whatever we define OSR as, if you like it and you like the, uh, the creative endeavors that come out of it and the discussions that come out of it, I think you need to point out the people that are tarnishing the reputation elsewhere and who are trying to shut down dialogue and shut down compromise and ideas and a free exchange of thoughts um, or who are engaging in otherwise antisocial behavior. We don't want it to become <laughs> what our politics have become, where it's an either or, a black and white, a this and them ally and enemy situation we i mean <laughs> we don't have to get to that point but closing our eyes to the problems doesn't make it go away so anyway uh the contest is still going on i'll announce the the winner of the midland zine of your choice on thursday so you have until 
midnight on Wednesday. That would be, what, the 20th, I think? No, 21st? Whatever it is. Send in your best Bella Lugosi impersonation. And, I mean, I've only gotten, I think, is it three or four so far? So your chances of winning are pretty good. Send something in and you've got, like, probably a 25% chance of winning. And these mitterzines are great. So if you don't have them, it's something you want to get your mitts on. And even if you have them or if you live outside the continental U.S. and uh, and um, aren't eligible, just because I, I'm too cheap to... <laughs> well, it is really expensive to send something to the U.K., let's be honest, or Europe or elsewhere, Asia, Africa, wherever you might be listening from. But it might just be fun, too. Uh, it only needs to be a couple seconds. Just call in and you're in the entry. In the, in the drawing. So thanks to Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, to Daniel from Bandit's Keep and, uh, podcast and YouTube channel, to BJ from the Arcane Alienist podcast, Taylor from the Clerics Wear Ringmail blog, and Goblin's Henchman from the Goblin's Henchman podcast and, uh, and blog. And to and Joe for giving us th- this... Uh, this fodder for much of the podcast with his questions uh, a few episodes ago, Joe Richter from the Hind Silas podcast. And thanks to everyone who's listened. And until I talk to you again, send in your Bella Lugosi. Now that you have learned what you have learned, don't go down in a heap.